0: Pettigrester, thank you
1: for submitting to another dodgy interrogation.
0: (laughs) Yes, been too many of those around lately.
2: Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser.
1: Now, Charles, don't freak out on me, okay? Our target today
2: is a convicted terrorist. Oh my God, he bombed something or killed people? What, what did he do? He- Even worse, Charles. He's a journalist.
1: <laughs> it's Peter Grester. He worked for Al Jazeera. He was locked up in Egypt for 400 days on
2: trumped-up charges. Maybe we should ask him about how to run Nauru.
1: Get this, he's trying to campaign for free speech and for the rights of journalists. We've got to stop him. Why did you want to become a foreign correspondent in the first place? What drew you to this life? Oh, man.
0: It's, it's, I wish I could come up with some kind of high-minded response to you, but uh, no, it was a license to indulge your curiosity, go off and have adventures. Um, You've got to be careful what you wish for sometimes. <laughs>
2: Were, uh, I, were you a troublemaker as a kid?
0: No. In fact, if anything, I was kind of worried that I was going to grow up and, and not have any stories to tell my kids. You know?
2: um, so you didn't show journalistic tendencies no, at an early no,
0: age? No. In fact, I nearly. I remember I had this conversation after I started studying journalism. I bumped into an old schoolmate of mine who, who, nearly, who nearly convinced me to drop the whole idea when I told her what I was doing and said I was studying journalism. She said, oh my God, endless English assignments for the rest of your life. <laughs> I thought, oh God, she, she's right. <laughs> Crap, what have I got myself into? Um, but so that was never really the thing for me. I, I read this book, One Crowded Hour, which is a biography of one of the finest uh, journalists that this country has ever produced, a wonderful guy called Neil Davis, who worked in Southeast Asia through the 1960s and 70s um, and 80s. And in, in the end, he, he came to a sticky end. He, he was killed in a coup in, in, um, in Thailand. But he was just such a fantastic journalist, and he had such an amazing life. And when I read the biography, I thought,
1: that's what I want to do. Was it the danger? No, I not the book's about the danger of journalism. Well, yeah, it is. And I, and I don't.
0: I, I listen. I, I guess we've all got our own tolerance for, for risk at various points along the way. Um, mine might be set a little bit higher than, <laughs> than most. But but equally, I don't think I'm a, I'm a thrill seeker or a, an adrenaline junkie. I don't do it just. I don't go out there just to try and get shot at. But equally, I think what we do is important, and I, you know, I figure that I've, I've had quite a bit of experience, and I've, I've got some sense of how to how to judge the level of risk and where to and where to set that line.
2: So, your first foreign correspondent assignment was in Afghanistan mm. back in the mid nineteen nineties. Did you sort of willingly put your hand up for that, or no?
0: That was another accident. Um, I, I I figured. I was doing some freelancing around London uh, quite a while, and I wanted to. My plan was to get into the BBC World Service, and I thought I'd I'd start doing some freelancing in out of the office in in London, and then find a place that was undercovered and, and go off and set up um, set up shop there and work as a freelance. And the first, I thought, rather than just go and send send my CV in and have some secretary shove it in the round file, I'd apply for a job. The job itself wasn't important, but I just thought the process of applying would force the the bosses to have a look at my CV. And then when I didn't get the job, I'd say, thanks very much. But I'm also available for freelancing. Um, And the first job that came up was the Kabul correspondence job. And it scared the crap out of me when I was researching it because it was right in the middle. The city was in, there was a front line running through the middle of the city. the, The bureau was all sandbagged up. There were all sorts of battles raging across the city. And I thought, geez, thank Christ, I'm not going to get this. And I was I was absolutely <laughs> bricking it when they said, uh, congratulations, you've
1: got the job. You were the only applicant. <laughs> Peter, as you probably know, we at Border Force take a fairly dim view of uh, public broadcasters. Why the BBC? What drew you to that organisation in particular? Oh, nothing other than they've got the world's biggest and best network
0: of foreign correspondents around you know in, in broadcasting yeah, troubles
2: us as well <laughs> and and what was it like in afghanistan in in the mid-1990s
0: you know it was tough in, in that it was dangerous um as working anywhere where there's bits of metal flying around at supersonic speeds but i i also learned more about my craft and, and probably almost more about myself up until recent years than, than than at any other point in my life. It was you know we were we we were not participants in that conflict and this is I think one of the key points to be made, particularly what I want to make in the book that in 1995 when we went there, um, I decided that we needed to act physically cross the front lines for our own safety. It sounds a bit of a paradox in a way, but I recognize that if you spend enough time, Around the front lines as a white guy, sooner or later, someone is going to find you in their rifle sights. And if that guy and his mates saw you as the enemy, then he was then he'd have no compunction about pulling the trigger. And I didn't want to be in that position, so I felt that we had uh, not just our professional responsibility, but for our own safety' sake, we had to cross the lines and make sure that everybody recognised that we had a that we were neutral parties to the conflict. We were just observers. And so we crossed the front lines, and, and guess who we spoke to? It was the Taliban. Now, back in those days the Taliban didn't necessarily agree with or understand our politics or our theology but they accepted us um, and it was a fantastic
1: experience interesting i guess given what happened to you afterwards that you started out realizing how important neutrality was in terms of how you were perceived but i was fascinated too as someone who's you know been taught in our training that Taliban equals bad that you were quite friendly with them how did that work yeah well, I,
0: you know it worked just because as i said we we did and 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 they recognised that we weren't we weren't any threat. We weren't parties to the conflict. You know, we wait for a quiet day when the front line was wasn't uh, so active, when they weren't shooting at each other that much. And, and if a few other civilians were making a crossing, you'd clench your butt cheeks and climb in the car and and, and drive across and, and go and talk to them. Does um, it
2: make it hard being critical it, to be critical towards them? You know, well, sharing tea with them.
0: No, it, it's it's about listening and understanding what They wanted what their position was. I mean, I didn't take a particular judgment. We obviously went and spoke to the other side, to what was then the government, um, and they were critical and more than happy to broadcast those critical comments and the critical comments of anybody else who, who wanted to, who we were speaking to. But we didn't, we, you know, we, we were very scrupulous about not taking a particular political position. And, you know, I got into a lot of shit from the government. Um, they threatened to, to kick me out of the country and we got a few death threats because of what of the work that we were doing. But again, I recognise that that was because what we were reporting um, obviously struck a nerve. Um, but we weren't getting threatened by the Taliban. We were getting threatened by the
1: government. Fascinatingly, Peter, when this was happening, BBC World Service was the most listened to news source throughout yeah. Afghanistan. Were you a celebrity? <laughs> yeah. Actually, funnily enough, I was. My, the, the, the name recognition,
0: apparently, uh, there was some survey done that which... Um the BBC correspondent, my name was was right up there next to the presidents. <laughs> they called the BBC the Big Mullah. It was a it was a huge responsibility because there were only there were no TV networks in the, in Afghanistan at the time. There was no I mean, even if people could read and write, well, most of the country was illiterate, but there was no distribution network for newspapers either. So the only medium that counted was radio. And apart from a handful of local stations run by the Mujahideen factions, which were basically you know, propaganda mouthpieces, the only ones with any real respect and that were broadcasting in the local languages was the BBC and Voice of America.
1: Sorry, Peter, just a moment. Charles, um, can you step out? Charles, did you hear what he said? The BBC was the big mullah. This is what we've always suspected. Yeah, Public always, broadcasters
2: they are, are in league with Islam. They are. They're totally Islamic. Pauline Hanson's. Yeah, been mentioning totally this for a right. long time. Well, I think it's just all public broadcasting. Oh, of BBC. course, the ABC no. as well. I oh, mean, the ABC
1: tries to mimic
2: the BBC. Yeah, exactly. All right, I think we can get him. Okay. So, Peter, fast forward to 2001, 9-11 happens, and George W. Bush declares you're either with us or against us. Yeah. What does that do to the ability to sort of go and have friendly chats to the Taliban.
0: What George Bush effectively did was made things a binary choice. You're either on one side of the line or you're on the other. And if you cross that line, then by definition, you are with the enemy. Um, And that was perhaps, you know, as as far as Bush was concerned, that was a great strategy when you're trying to build a coalition that was going after the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But for journalists, what it meant was that it was impossible to do your job which by definition is to speak to all parties to the dispute, to all, to all parties to the conflict. He, he was never
1: great with nuance he was <laughs> no.
0: Mm. <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. And, and they, I mean, to underline the point, they dropped a bomb on the Al Jazeera Bureau in Kabul, uh, which had been, which got the first interview, the one interview I suspect that every journalist in the world would have wanted at the time, and that was with Osama bin Laden.
1: Um, well, that's a, another fascinating topic is your relationship with Al Jazeera. If anything could have made us more suspicious <laughs> than working with the BBC, it's going and working with a public broadcaster from Qatar. Yeah, and with, that, with
0: Al in their name. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And that um, relationship is a very long one. You talk about it in the book, Al Jazeera's Own History. We won't go into, into huge detail here. How did you come to work for them? Um, well, again, they offered me a, a good job.
0: Um, I've been doing a lot of work for the BBC. I had 15 years with the BBC and... But it was running its course. Um, the BBC was running into a fi- real financial crisis. They, um, I was still working freelance for them. For personal reasons, it made sense for me. And the money, the work was drying up. They were telling me that they they just couldn't afford to send me to to the kinds of stories that I needed to do, I wanted to do. Um, and about the same time, Al Jazeera stepped up and said, listen, we'd like to offer you some work in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was a f- fantastic opportunity. So I, I jumped at it. And they were giving me... Both not just the, the the space on air but also the, the resources to pretty much cover the continent as, as, as much as I wanted to and wherever I wanted to go it was brilliant
1: Saudis era were treated like a combatant in that conflict in the 2001 war on terror. Yeah, they That's
0: were they got really hammered um, by critics who said that and by particularly by um, by Bush's administration who said that they were siding siding with terrorism they were apologists for terrorism they were propagandists for terrorism. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was complete rubbish. You know, they, what they were doing was, was using all of their resources to go and speak to the other side. Um, they were broadcasting the consequences of American bombing in, in, um, Afghanistan. They did much the same in Iraq during the, in that invasion. Um, you know, they had a very different worldview. And remember at the time they were talking about Al Jazeera Arabic, which, had a lot of those networks and contacts. Al Jazeera English hadn't been formed back in 19, in 2001. You know, they still have become equated with, you know, terrorism. Um,
2: but what they were doing was sort of introducing nuance. Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. I mean, that, Which is a form of terrorism.
0: <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you, you ought to be afraid of, of hearing from the other side. But but
1: why, why would you talk to the other side, though,
0: when you know that what they say is evil? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. If, it, if it's not to promote terrorism, if it's not to scare the bejesus out of everyone.
2: But also, so you blame President Bush for introducing this binary, but the Taliban oh, started started killing I'm, journalists around that time. Yeah, too. I'm not I mean, I'm
0: not blaming Bush for it, but I'm saying that that was the turning point. That was the pivot point, which either side abandoned any any sense of of, of respect for journalism, and decided that we were part of the battle space. Because what happened at that point. Was that we moved from conflicts over tangible stuff like land or water or ethnicity, into a conflict over ideas. And in that battle for over ideas, the place where ideas are transmitted, the media, in other words, the, the thing that we're talking on right now, um becomes a part of the battlefield, and journalists become targets in that conflict. And this isn't abstract. Um as you mentioned, as I just mentioned, there was the American bomb that was dropped on Al Jazeera bureau. The Taliban uh, changed their tune. Radically, they did a 180 on it um, on us, and um, they kidnapped a bunch of journalists. They ambushed their vehicle that was travelling from up to Kabul um, and pulled them out of the vehicle, and, including an Australian cameraman, Harry Burton, and a very good friend of mine, uh, Maria Grazia catulli an Italian journalist. They dragged them off into the hills and they executed them because simply because they were journalists, not because of any story they were doing, but just because they were journalists. And so both sides have been have been gunning for for journalism.
1: Well, that's the interesting thing is that if they're Assuming everyone's on a side, it seems that both sides are treating journalists as the enemy, which is one of the reasons you wrote a, a book about more than just your own story. As fascinating as that is, you wanted to look at this issue more broadly. Yeah, I always felt that if 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 it's just my story, then it's not really
0: worth anything. It's not. It's it's just a it's a good yarn, but it's still just a yarn. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I realised that what had happened to us was a particularly egregious example of the kinds of things that things have been happening all over the world where either the extremists have been killing journalists or governments have been stretching the definitions around the war on terror and terrorism and, and national security to include journalists, to either lock, literally lock journalists up as we were in Egypt for simply talking to the opposition, or as we're seeing in other parts of the world, using national security legislation to limit the work that journalists can do. And I think that's a real problem. I don't think we've really
1: understood that issue. So you think it's bad to limit what journalists can do because of national security? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, just a, just a sec. <laughs> we've got to talk about this. <laughs> Charles, he's not with the program. I would have thought that after all the Australian government did to help him, he would have been Yeah, on he'd be,
2: you'd think he'd be a bit grateful. I can't you know, believe it. it. Julia Bishop's going to be very upset about this. Yeah, um, yeah. All right. Look, I've got his rap sheet here. Let's... Just actually go in and we
1: actually should probably talk about the, what he actually did, yeah, shouldn't yeah. we? So, Peter, the Marriott cell. Yep. Yeah. It sounds innocuous when you put it like that, but it was it was quite serious.
2: Yeah. So, what's it like running a terrorist cell? <laughs>
1: oh, pretty cheap. <laughs> um, oh man. Um, Is the Marriott the hotel chain you'd recommend to others looking to set up?
0: Yeah, yeah. They've got really great little rooms that you can. To sit in and you know, have quiet conversations, and you know, it's, it's it's not a bad place to, to sneak in and out of, uh, particularly with all the cameras that they've got around there and the security guards that they've got on the gate and the and the um, government agents that they've got patrolling the corridors. It's 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 a great place to stick your head down and and, and not be noticed.
2: So, so, why were you staying in the Marriott at that point? Like, and and because your Al Jazeera English. Was actually set up there. You were running an office out of the Marriott, yeah you, yeah
0: yeah time? exactly yeah. Um, Al Jazeera had been had been getting a bit of a rough time from both the government and and, and the opposition and and,
2: and so when it, when is this is twenty eleven is it?
0: It was no, it was twenty thirteen.
2: Sorry, twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah. And and. Um, and just give us the broader context.
0: Well, what had happened was that Al Jazeera had been accused of of being of sponsoring terrorism or supporting terrorism Muslim Brotherhood, and so it had come under a lot of pressure, but it hadn't been it hadn't you know been officially um, ordered out of the country. and so for safety's sake, we thought that the best thing would be to go into a place where we had all the resources that we needed um, and also several layers of security, so you
1: know, and, and a swimming pool.
0: And a swimming pool, yeah, exactly, with decent room
1: service. Um, and so we set up there. So, Paddy, you were listening to Triple J from the ABC. As I would expect, there was a knock on the door. Yeah.
0: Tell us who came in. Um, well, I was, yeah, I was dancing around the room, Triple J. I really enjoyed that kind of music and there was this knock on the door. Do
2: you remember what the song was?
0: I wish I could. I, I, I can't. It was, it was, you know, fairly... It was, it was pr- probably Australian hip hop, <laughs> Yes.
2: Anyway, there was this knock it, on the that's door. It's actually enough that, of a reason for conviction.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly, deportation. Um, and there was, I, I, I quickly sort of did up my shirt and, and went and there was another knock on the door, rather more urgent. And I cracked the door open and it was flung inside almost as if there was a spring behind it. And and the room was filled with a bunch of guys. I, I still don't remember exactly how many. It felt like a lot, maybe eight, ten, whatever. And they started going through the room. They started ransacking the place, searching it, turning everything upside down, bagging up all of my things. They closed a the little laptop, shoved it in the bag, You know, grabbed my notebook, um, cameras, all sorts of stuff, and then marched us down to the police cells.
2: Well, you did have quite a lot of suspicious equipment, didn't you? You had, yeah. you had a laptop, you had a video camera. Yep,
0: I had a, had a stills camera, I had a
1: notebook, Go, oh, no, yeah, 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 nah, that, yeah, that's a
2: giveaway. Huh? Alarm bells for anyone in our profession,
1: Peter. Yeah, oh, and, and a mobile phone. Yeah, well, we have those too. Um, <laughs> when did you first realize it was serious? Because you've had these sorts of interrogations yeah. before. Yeah, I've been
0: brought in before. But, you know, I, I, I thought, look, I thought this was, usually it, it's just a few phone calls. Some, maybe someone's a bit cranky with you and they want to just rattle your cage a bit. But most of the time, it's you know there's some mistake. Someone's gone a little bit over enthusiastic. There's a couple of phone calls. Uh, generally, you know a few hours in the cells, and then a handshake and an apology, and you mm. and you sent on your way. At the very worst, we thought it'd be deportation. But it's when we got hauled down to the national security directorate for interrogation that we realised things were getting a bit serious. Um, I was charged with uh, with aiding and abetting a terrorist organisation, being a member of a terrorist organisation, financing a terrorist organisation broadcasting false news to undermine national security. So you
1: were charged with fake news. I
0: was charged with fake news and
1: terrorism. Yep. The two tend to go together. That's what we're hearing from our American colleagues.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's what that's what Donald Trump keeps telling, keeps reminding us. Of.
2: Well, I suppose on on the list of sort of carry, you got terrorists, and then below that, the worst of the worst, you've got foreign correspondents.
0: Yeah, so, exactly. Oh no, yeah. look,
1: there, there's, there's,
2: I think we can all agree <laughs> on that.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you want to shoot someone, then then if you can't find a terrorist, then you go after the journalist.
1: So, Peter, one of the reasons we were so keen to talk to you is because we're interrogators. But reading the book, we got the sense that those guys were a whole other level above us, and we're keen to get some tips from the Egyptians. What was it like? What, what did they do to you? It's a good question. They were pretty. They were pretty relaxed
0: about it. Um, certainly, my interrogators were. I, I know that um, I saw some other guys. So a so bit
2: like this? Uh,
1: uh, not quite like this. Not. But, quite. <laughs> they weren't exactly offering me tea and coffee. Um, a lot of it was in Arabic, wasn't it? What, speaking in a different language is certainly our one of our tactics like <laughs> no interpreters
0: they they were um I know of others who who were pretty seriously tortured but we had a lot of a lot of diplomats a lot of human rights groups a lot of people watching what was taking place and so we got a fairly benign run but that was still fairly fairly aggressive with the ter- with the questioning you know they wanted to know exactly who we'd spoken to exactly what we were doing where we were going what the stories we were doing and we kept going through it you know I kept telling them this is you know what we've what we do by definition is out there on the public record. There's we don't have any secrets. You know what, and, and and by all means, show me what we've broadcast. Show me the news that we broadcast. The false news that was undermining national security. I'm happy to talk about that stuff.
2: Did you rat out any informants? Uh,
0: <laughs> no, I didn't. In fact, I wish I had some informants to rat to, 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 to that I either could have ratted out or would have had to protect no we, we had nothing it was all it was all completely above board
2: so they, they put you in solitary yeah um what was that like
0: solitary is pretty rough you know the thing the thing you realize is once you once you're in there you realize it actually physically i'm okay I, I i've got food and nutrition it wasn't always great but it we had it um i got water And the one thing that the Egyptian prison system is very good at doing is sheltering you from the elements, Um, you know, the walls and the ceiling were pretty solid. And so I had all of the basic things that I needed for survival, physically for survival. And that environment, you realize that the one thing that's really going to get you is your own head. It's a psychological problem. Solitary confinement, prison generally, but solitary confinement in particular is designed to mess with your head that's the thing you've really got to deal with your own psychology.
1: It was interesting that you turned to meditation uh, as a way of dealing with that. Yeah. I kind of consider myself very lucky that, that I had that.
0: Um, a few years ago, um, I went through a, a rather difficult breakup and to try and steady the ship, I went and did a meditation course. I didn't, it was fairly hardcore, um, you know, 10 days of silent meditation and so on. And I, I, I kind of came away from that knowing the kind of techniques, but without really understanding it. But here's the thing: that when they shoved me in in the cell and sol- and, and slammed the door and said, "Right, you're on your own," I realized, "Hang on a minute! I, I've been here before. I've got the tools for this." And it was incredibly powerful because it meant that you could you could see the kind of psychology of of what I was going through from the outside. It was almost you kind of watch yourself as an observer looking at a bug through a microscope. Um, the moment that I started to go through sort of crazy psychology, crazy mind games, you could, I could see it and, and say, okay, I know what's going on here. You, you can't go down that route.
1: When we're in a tough spot, uh, Charles and I, we, we, tend to just, we've got a photo on the wall of Minister Dutton and we just stare at that and, and, until everything's okay. Would you say that what you did in the cell was better or worse than just, just considering Peter Dutton? You know, <laughs> Um, well, if it's, if,
0: if, if you're interested in protecting your own mental health, I'd recommend meditation as a, as a
1: preferred option.
2: Is that a picture of Dutton? I thought that was a picture of a potato.
1: (laughs) It's the duality of the potato and the minister that makes it so powerful. But you described this as being like being a baby again. It must've been really quite a strange thing. Yeah, it is weird because the thing that you have as a baby is what, what, what you don't have is,
0: is control. You have no control, but also no responsibility. You can't make any choices about the things you do, about the times that you know you've got no power to choose when you go for a walk or when you don't. You know, got no power to watch whether you got to what what books you read and what you don't read. It's all all of those decisions are made for you. When you eat, what you eat, everything is is chosen for you. And so, in a way, the hard thing, the hardest thing to do, is to actually give up that sense of responsibility and say, okay. I can't do any of that. I've got no responsibility for that and I have to deal with the, the very small things that I do have
1: control over and that's actually my own head. Actually, looking at him now, Charles, I Minister Dutton doesn't look like a giant baby, doesn't he?
2: Oh, yeah. Maybe that's what he's doing. You actually describe yourself as very content at certain points yeah. in, in that process. Do you think that's a message that you could tell the detainees on Manus Island? And uh,
0: yeah, no, I wouldn't. I mean, it's 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 a, i wouldn't say that i wouldn't tell them that they should be contented that they're in a contented place and that actually it's good because actually i think it's, it, it's,
2: minister <laughs> Dutton has read your book and sort of has gone oh well obviously <laughs> we're treating the refugees very well probably
0: probably yeah probably not hard enough exactly they need to put them into into solitary confinement where they where they can get a little bit
1: of self do a bit of self reflection perhaps one of the extraordinary things was though when you got transferred to the prison with all the political Prisoners, mm. um, you discovered that they already knew who you were, and there was actually a welcoming committee. Yeah. and they showered you with gifts. Yeah, Tell that us was about that. That
0: was weird. This was this was actually just before I went, as I was going into solitary, they moved me into an into a prison, and, and all around me were it was it was crazy. All of, I didn't realize it at the time, but all around me were, were these guys who were the secular leaders of the January twenty fifth Revolution of twenty eleven, which toppled Hosni Mubarak. It, People might remember the, the incredible images of literally millions of people out in the streets of Cairo calling for Mubarak's departure. And, and it was those guys in the cell that organized those millions out in the streets. What an incredibly sad thing for them to end up with yeah, that reward. It, it, it was absolutely tragic. Um, and some of them are still there to this day. But anyway, as I, as I walked in, one of all I heard was this voice yell out, Peter Craster? Al Jazeera? I sort of said, yeah, and they said, welcome, <laughs> well, welcome to Liverpool. And all of a sudden, I, I t- heard this sort of thump, and I turned around, and, and there was this packet of biscuits that had fallen on the floor, and then another thump, and there was, there was a, a pillow, that, and, and another thump, and there were long johns, and all of a sudden, this stuff just people were just stuffing things out through the, the, the doors of their cell, the hatches in their cell. And it was all for me, you know. This is and remember, this, this is guy from guys that were all of this stuff is absolutely precious, you know, food, clothing, all of this stuff. But they recognised that I'd come in with nothing and that I needed that, I needed that that support and the recognition that those guys were with me. It was one of the most incredible acts of generosity that I've ever experienced.
2: And they they organised uh, to help you smuggle a letter mm. out of the out of that. Yeah, and, and, a,
0: and a significant risk to themselves because if, if they'd been caught, they, they already had a kind of a kind of postal system, if you could call it that, in place, um, an underground postal system. Um,
2: so can you tell us exactly who did it and how they did it? <laughs> Let's
1: say we were looking for this kind of behaviour. You,
0: you guys are going to have to up your interrogation techniques before you're going to have to take some lessons from... What from, was in the letter? Um, I it was That was the letter in which I called out what was happening to us I I struggled for a long time to reconcile the gap between what we're accused of doing which was being propagandists for terrorism and what we actually did which was which was um, pretty mundane journalism and and it was really after thinking about for a while I recognised and particularly after talking about it with Allah Abdul Fattah one of the other guys in, in, in the block who said look you've got to understand the politics of it step take away move away from your own own situation think more broadly about the messages this sends and i realized this isn't about us this is a uh, but this isn't about anything that i've done this is about what i've come to represent and that was press freedom and so it became very clear that the government wanted to attack all journalists they wanted to intimidate all journalists and they came after us because we were politically convenient and when i re- realized that i thought the only we've got the choice we can either tackle the case um, on the grounds that the prosecutor wants. We can tell them, look, the charges are baseless. basis, there's no evidence, we pose no threat, it's all okay, you know, there's all been some big mistake. Or I can take the high road and say, no, this isn't about us, this is about press freedom. And I realised, actually, if I, because there was no connection, there was no evidence of, of anything that we'd done, and that even the prosecutor couldn't possibly have taken the, what, the evidence of what we did and come to the conclusion that we were terrorists i realized that if we took that route if we tried to deal with it on the ter- on the uh, prosecutor's grounds we we're always going to lose there was no way we we're going to win that and, and so i felt the only choice i've got both in terms of my own my own case my own f- battle to get out but also for the higher principle was to call it out for what it was and that's why i wrote two
1: letters saying this is not about us this is an attack on press freedom more broadly. And it's interesting you say that. I mean, in your book, which is about press freedom more more broadly, you talk about this in the West and in Mm. Egypt and in places like that. And I guess they don't have the tactic that we we have here at Border Force where we just say it's an on-water material (laughs) and you can't report it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I kind of hope that people will still go and report it. But this is a problem. This is the thing that, that, that we're using national security legislation like the Border Force Act which is, and, and saying that you can't report stuff that's covered by the Border Force Act. Now, again, I'd, I'd perhaps understand it if that meant that we couldn't broadcast what, you know, border force operations are to try and undercover operations to, to find terrorists. But the act is being used to, has been used to stop the reporting of the conditions on Manus and Nauru.
2: Exactly. Nauru. Yeah, yeah. But but That was national, the national, national, intention
1: of
0: Exactly, national security issue. Yeah. Can, can we just chat for a moment?
1: Sorry. Charles. Mm. Is he saying we're the same, in effect, as the Egyptian government and all these other repressive I, regimes? I think
2: he's drawing a moral equivalence. It's actually quite gratifying, isn't it? Because they're, they're hard ass. They're much more hard ass than I thought we were. Isn't it nice
1: to talk to someone who understands the project? Yeah, thank goodness. More broadly. Now, if I were advertising on this podcast, I think this is the note at which I'd
2: love my ad to appear. Fucking advertiser friendly ads. So you wrote those prison letters. Yeah. What's it like writing a letter from prison? I mean, you know, you've got Gandhi, Nelson Mandela did it, Gramsci. Like, there's some very famous...
0: Yeah, it's a bit intimidating, so they, isn't it? <laughs> who who Os- wrote Oscar it better?
2: Oscar Wilde. or Oscar Wilde. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. How, not, do, it, but, how, do you, how do you approach that as a writing test? That would give me writer's book for days. Yeah, I'd be very... it's the it, pressure, yeah, yeah. It,
0: it scared the crap out of me, too. I'm sitting there thinking, Christ Almighty, you know, isn't prison supposed to give you some grand inspiration, sort of, you know, some some access to some kind of higher... Hi, a literary God I don't know um yeah it was it was kind of scary but uh, in the end I figured look you just got just gotta do it get down and do it and, I,
2: and what was and what was the consequence uh, when that letter sort of made it it made it all the way up to the head of the UN like did that and
0: to, and it also landed on on Barack Obama's desk as well mm. um, I I um, I didn't I was terrified I was bricking it I thought that we were actually going to get some blowback from this I thought that they were going to take away a whole bunch of privileges and and perhaps even worse they were going to, you know they were going to throw new charges at me um, in the end I, I don't know specifically if it if it caused if it you know led to us being locked up in prison that it confirmed what the the prosecutor the prosecutor's allegations against us I, I really don't know but we didn't feel any direct. Consequence from it. Um, Although, as I said, we did wind up in prison and get sentenced to seven years.
1: Peter, I do understand some of what you went through. I mean, I was once locked up for 20 minutes um, (laughs) at Burwood Police Station after filming a member of the Chaser streaking through a courtroom. (laughs) So, really, much the same. That's actually how they got me to work for Border Force. It's the only way I could get my record wiped clean. Yeah, yeah. You get your uh, get
2: you, an advice. Did you write a letter from prison, <laughs> Dom? <laughs>
1: um, I composed a couple of lines in my head, but we were released before. It was actually very <laughs> awkward because when I was interrogated by the police, I'd failed to film. Andrew Hansen streaking through and Jules streaking through the courtroom. <laughs> so they thought I'd trickily hidden the footage somewhere. And it, took a, it was very hard oh, of me to so, convince so, them that it was so, so they were keen just keen So they, they were keen to search, were they? They were. So I understand a little bit of what you went oh, It's much the same sort of thing, you know, free press, that kind of thing. But
2: Four, 400 days in prison. Yeah, 20, 20 minutes. minutes yeah. yeah.
1: But look, border force some. can be very kind, is all I'm saying, to those who abandon their principles completely. And and join the security state, especially if you're in, like like a good cavity search. Look, they're a fringe benefit to <laughs> me. <laughs> I mean, plus. would
2: would you be interested in helping us make detention more awful in this country?
0: Uh, yeah, no, no. Just yes. as a you you consultant, guys, I'm sure role. you guys are. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that border force is, is has has some really talented guys. We got th- with we did them, get some
1: ideas <laughs> from the book. One of the things that really struck me was what you had to do to pass the time, and there's. There's a there was a moment where you played a game based on water bottles and it's going to be hard for me to get a water bottle without <laughs> thinking about that game <laughs> yeah no, well. it's not the
0: bottle it's not the game that everyone's sort of trying to conjure it, thinking at the moment no um, but, but water bottle tops we made a kind of we did a couple of things with it we made um, like a version of prison what we call prison petanque, like like bulls you know um, like bowls you, you sort of throw down a white colored bottle top and then you as a jack, and then you try and chuck others down there to try and get as close as you can. We we also uh, invented or we made a, a, a backgammon board, uh, which got us into a bit of trouble. Um, I've never known how to play a backgammon. Was it worth it? Oh, God. Yeah, well, if you've got to kill sort of three or four hours a day, then, then backgammon's not a bad way of doing it.
2: So then you got moved to um, another prison uh, just before the start of your trial, mm. Um, and that gave you access to all the sort of Muslim Brotherhood top brass. Yeah, it was
0: it? it was weird because we'd gone from this prison with all of these secular leaders of, of the revolution um, one day and then I was moved into this other one with all of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood pretty much apart from Mohamed Morsi, the ousted the president himself. So in the cell next door to us, we had a guy called Mohamed Badia who was the supreme guide of the Muslim Brotherhood, the spiritual leader of the Brotherhood. Upstairs and to the right, we had um, another guy called Hisham Khandil, who was the former prime minister. Right across um, the way from us, in the, in the cell opposite, was Said Katatni, the speaker. Uh, there was a minister of labour, minister of supply. There was um, all sorts of ministerial advisers and and. and Pretty much half the cabinet.
2: there. So you must have been in heaven. This was like as, unprecedented. As a, as
0: a journalist, it was yeah. perfect. Yeah, we kind of realized. <laughs> hang on a minute. We've got these are the guys that we always wanted to talk to while we we're out, out in the field. You know, these are the guys that were responsible for making all sorts of decisions. And and,
1: and they can't get away. They can't
0: get away. <laughs> exactly. Literally a captive audience. Um, so what we did was we, we realized. Well, hang on a sec. we we've got these guys. Um, we're journalists. Let's run a radio show. So one night, um, one of the other guys who was arrested in case pulls up the bed to the end of the cell and stands up and yells up, Welcome to Radio Bullhack! And, and, and uh, we, we had this big conversation. We opened it up with a news bullet. Oh, wow. each, each day, someone, you know, someone, there were that many people in there that someone would have had a visit through the day or, or picked up some snippet of news from overheard conversations with the guards. Um, and so we share that with the whole cell and, and uh, we had a relay system. So if one guy down one end of the cell couldn't hear the guys up the other, then those in the middle would, would translate the information. And, it's very uh,
1: disappointing that even after being looked up, you're still conducting journalism, Peter. <laughs> yeah. What have they got to do?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, look, you know, once a journalist, what, what else do you do?
1: But what a fascinating thing that you went to separate regimes that had tried to change Egypt. Um, the, the very liberal, progressive, Western-focused, yep. the very conservative, Islamic-focused. Yep. Yep. So, who was it that locked you up? <laughs> it was the um, the the
0: right-wing conservatives. You know, the, it was the military. Um, they'd ousted the Muslim Brotherhood in a coup six months earlier, and they'd taken to branding the Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. So they were the ones that that had locked us up. Yeah, we were stuck in the middle of this very weird triangle.
1: But it is interesting, isn't it, the way that this. Um, I guess post nine eleven language of calling people terrorists has mm. been used by governments to just label anyone that they that they don't like. Putin does it.
0: All the kinds of people. Turks. Do it. Yeah, exactly. It happens in Turkey, Erdogan, mm, Syria does it all yeah, the time. Syria, exactly, all over the world. And you know we're we're seeing we're seeing journalists being targeted. I mean, take the United States. Barack Obama, he in, in, um, he used the Espionage Act. Now the Espionage Act was introduced in 1918, at the end of the First World War, to do what it does, says, does what it says on the tin, it's designed to get foreign spies. And from 1918 until 2000 and, um, 2008, when Obama was first inaugurated, the Act was used a total of five times to go after foreign spies. From 2008 to 2016, when Obama left, he used the Act, his administration used the Espionage Act more than twice as often as all of his predecessors combined, and in every case, in almost every case—not every case—but almost every case, it was to go either uh, go after either journalists or their sources. You, know, you get that—that that would be excusable if, if those cases were, those guys were revealing national secrets. You know, revealing CIA counterterrorism tactics to to Al Qaeda, for example. But it nev- that wasn't what what these cases were about. It was it was. Because they were exposing politically embarrassing things.
1: Well, you, you elect a constitutional law professor president. He's going to have some some fresh <laughs> ideas. So there's a photo of you with Barack Obama in the book. You both look very pleased. You'd just been yeah. released. Did you take the chance to tell him that he was an enemy of the free press? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: no, at that time I kind of needed his help. Um, that was before my two mates were still in prison. The, the American government was still using our cases as a way to to put pressure on the Egyptians. So I still needed I still needed his help, and I really didn't understand that as well. It was only really when I was doing some more homework, some more research, they realised that actually he actually hadn't been that great for press freedom. Um, Yeah.
2: What about our own government? I noticed you're there smiling with Julie Bishop.
0: Yeah, but um, yeah, I've I've also wagged my finger at at, um, Jules as well.
2: What's wrong with Australia?
0: Well, what we've got is all sorts of pieces of legislation um, that have limited freedom of the press uh, or freedom of speech. I know, it's, uh, it's great, isn't it? 66, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You guys in Border Force are really, you know, really doing great We've job. actually,
1: we've got a little, little kiddie's waiting pool that we bring in to the interrogation room, yeah. fill it with water. We're on water. We can't report any of what's going on. It.
2: Mm.
0: It's it, yeah. You get and, points and for creativity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and if you've got any left over, then it's really good for waterboarding too, I guess. Um, now, I, I um, here what we've got is all sorts of bits of legislation. And let's take the... Um, the metadata legislation, data retention bill. Do you
1: understand it? Because no, no one at border, yeah. it, Senator Brander still doesn't know what's going on.
2: <laughs> there. It's actually a requirement that we don't understand it uh, to be able to get a job here. That, yeah, well, that's how everyone voted
1: for it. Yeah, well, that,
0: let, let me give you guys a, a little bit of a crash course in it. What, what the metadata bill does is it compels telecommunications companies to, to hold on to your, the metadata um, for at least two years, all of the details of who you emailed and when, all of the da- the location data on your mobile phone, the people that you called, all that that sort of stuff, and how long you made the calls for, and and it's supposed to be for national security. Supposed to give uh, the government, you guys, of course, um, the tools to come after terrorists. Mm-hmm. Okay, we get that. Um, except that it gives also gives a whole bunch of agencies, not just the security services like Border Force or ASIO, the right to investigate the metadata without a warrant of any Australian apart from journalists, and of course we're special, um, but it doesn't protect journalist sources. So we know that metadata, and you guys again will be very happy to hear this, that metadata was used to investigate the source of leaks about the conditions on Manas and Nauru, not national security politically embarrassing yes but not a national security issue and it's been used several times to deal with that sort of stuff if you think about what that means for one of the most fundamental principles of of journalism which is the the responsibility the right that we have to protect our sources of leaks of information which um, which help expose stuff that's going on within government then it makes it incredibly difficult if not impossible for sources to come to journalists to talk to them without risking being exposed and and that undermines one of the most fundamental principles of the way democracy is supposed to work can i just um take a moment sorry peter
1: charles this is this is really scary Mm. do you know that from what he's saying if our superiors learnt that we met with peter grester a convicted terrorist without knowing what the content of the conversation was we could get in huge trouble
2: yeah that's terrible what are we going to do Look, I think we've got to release this whole thing on the internet. Okay. Okay,
1: for transparency. All right, let's do that. Peter, we've jumped around a bit. I'm, I'm keen to take you back to the trial because the moment that we probably all remember was when you were in the courtroom in a cage. It was an extraordinary thing to see on TV. And how did that feel? Oh, man, that was not a good day.
0: That, that kind of ruined our day. Um, we, we didn't think we were going to get convicted. I mean anybody that watched the trial would have recognized that they didn't pay any attention to the evidence, that there was no evidence whatsoever.
1: My favorite moment is when you uh, when they open the lid of your computer um, yeah. all these months later. Yeah. and what happens?
0: Um, this was in the very beginning of the trial when they were entering the evidence. they present the physical evidence in court and you know they're um, opening up all the evidence boxes a judge pulls out of cameras so one camera belonging to Mohammed Fami, one uh, mobile phone belonging to Baham Mohammed, one laptop belonging to Mr. Peter Grester, and he opens up the laptop and music triple J comes out. So you the played triple music, J in the sa- Egyptian courtroom. <laughs> the same music that I was listening to when, when they arrested me. And what that tells me, I just burst out laughing and I got a I, I I nearly I was nearly in contempt of court for that because I, couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. What had happened was it was obvious that the, the investigators had never bothered even physically opening up my laptop to see what, what was on it.
2: Well, they already knew you were guilty. so Well, clearly.
0: And they didn't really care about the evidence. And so with no evidence on the day that we were convicted, or day, on the day of the sentencing, on the day of con- the, sorry, the verdict, we thought, look, there's no evidence. It's just been a whole farce. It's going to be a massive embarrassment. They can't possibly convict us. And we thought, well, maybe the court needs to convict us of something, just find some administrative offence that we're guilty of um, so that they can justify the whole time. But we've already spent six months in prison, so surely time served would be enough and then everybody's happy. We get to go free, they get a conviction, it's all done and dusted. At the worst, we thought, maybe we'll have to stay in prison for another week or or two. Jesus, when they gave us seven years, it, it it was just devastating. Really devastating.
2: And you describe the feeling of that you might be in jail for a very long time. What's it like for that to…
0: That understanding is really, really overwhelming but in a crushing kind of way. I mean, physically, you you feel the weight of the concrete and steel on on your chest. It just, I mean, it, it, because you always, up to that point, we'd always thought, "Ah, it's going to end. It'll it'll be over. We'll sort this out. We just have to put up with this for a few more weeks. You know, maybe a month or so, and it'll be done." When all of a sudden, it's it's like, bang, seven years. It, it's it's inconceivable that amount of time um, inside a concrete box, and and so what you have to do is is actually stop thinking of seven years. You think, okay, I, I just have to get through. Whatever it is, I think I can survive. Some days it was, it was, sometimes it was three days out that I could project. Sometimes it was just make it to the end of today.
1: It's fascinating too, just the way that this unfolds in terms of your career, because um, we're so used to thinking of ourselves as Australians, as Westerners, as being impervious when we travel around the world. And throughout much of your journalistic career, you've had that experience. that You go around, you kind of have this bubble of safety around you. And that bubble started to be eroded for journalists, as you've written about, and for us to hear to watch you locked up there in in court was very moving for that reason. But then, of course, you were locked up along with um, a lot of colleagues who weren't Australian, and the treatment in their case was was different. Yeah, it was. I mean, I I saw a lot of them getting getting really badly
0: abused. Um, you know, we saw the, the the scars in them from from acid burns, cigarette burns. Um, We've had some horrific stories about all sorts of torture techniques, um, you know, a thing called the crucifix, you know, um, all sorts of things which are really, really horrendous. And I, in that respect, I felt quite lucky that we had the kind of protection of, of attention from whether it's governments or human rights groups and so on to, to
1: insulate us from a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's very awkward for us at Border Force because in, w- in one sense, of course, journalists being locked up, that's, you know, we're fine with that but but an australian being locked up by by foreigners that's yeah that, mm. that's a, that's beyond the path it's a real yeah yeah, yeah it's a <laughs> that sounds really wrong <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah especially when terrorism is involved i know it's a, it must do your heads in do you think that the journalistic coverage of your trial helped get you out oh yes yeah no doubt you know i mean it was it was it it showed up a lot of what was going on and and people understood just how crazy the case was and and put massive amounts of, of diplomatic and political pressure.
2: Well, there was a campaign in Australia where all the journalists taped their mouths up, yeah. um, all the breakfast hosts and news journalists and everything like that. We loved that campaign. Oh, there's a photo really in the
1: book of Carl Stefanovic with tape over his mouth. Yeah. And, I mean, congratulations <laughs> for, for achieving that. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, No, I am very proud of that, of that moment. No, it meant everything to us. It really did. I mean, I was very, very... So overwhelmed by the public response, of course. But in a way, it was our professional colleagues that really got behind us that that was just unbelievable. You know, and, and you guys would know, this is a business where the opposition would rather murder their own babies than than acknowledge the opposition. Um, you know, they're bitter, nasty rivals. You know? But it, the whole of the BBC newsroom got out and taped their mouths shut. CNN did it. You know, right across Australia, everyone was doing it.
2: Did um, Fox News do it?
0: I actually think they probably did do it. I c I tell t I can't tell probably you. Probably with an American
1: flag. <laughs> yes, yes. The moment when you were released, that must have been an extraordinary moment. Oh yeah. Well the moment the moment I was released was bizarre.
0: I I was I was actually on the day that I was released, I was convinced that they were gonna hold us in prison, that they weren't that they were just messing around with us, that they were playing games with us. In fact I was gonna tell my brother that we've got to start a hunger strike. That's how sure I was that they weren't going to let me out. And the guard, I was running up and down the the corridor of my cell where I did some exercise. Um, this cell about twenty meters long, and I was just running up and down the thing. And the guard called me over and said, "Listen, the boss needs to speak to you." And he said to me, um, "Pack your things. You're you're going." And I said, well, "What do you mean I'm going?" He said, "I said you're moving. Am I moving prisons?" He said, "No, no. The embassy's here in half an hour. Get going. You're going home, yella." it was just crazy because in a way it, it, it to me it feels a little bit like christmas you know if, if christmas can you imagine with christmas we we, we, we anticipate it we go through all the preparations you imagine what the day is like as a kid and then on the morning of december 25th you wake up and you dive into the presents and you wallow around and you have a fantastic time but imagine how all of a sudden how it would be if all of a sudden one day just right out of the blue you wake up and you find these gifts at the end of your bed and you Think, hang on a tick. What, what's going on here? Is it someone trying to mess with my head? Am I getting into trouble? Are they for me? Am I going to get into trouble if I start opening them up? What's going on? And that's how it was for me. It was like, what, am I re- am I really free? Are you, you guys just screwing around with me? I, if, we got on a plane, me and my brother, and went to Cyprus, and I was, honestly, I was half waiting for the pilot to get over the tannoy and say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to flight Egypt Air flight 317 to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. <laughs> um, and it was really only, on, honestly, only when I finally made it back to Australia, walked off the plane in Brisbane at like two in the morning on a on Wednesday morning and, and saw just this vast wall of, of people and cameras and photographers and microphones and these huge signs saying, welcome home, Peter. That, that was the moment that I thought, ah, this is over.
1: It must've meant a lot to you if you were so, so delighted to fly into Brisbane. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah. But you, um, you left behind in jail, your co-accused. That must've tinged the victory a bit.
0: Yeah, it was tough. That was really tough. Um, but we'd, we'd actually talked about this. We always knew that there was a possibility that one of us would, would get out and the others would have to stay behind. And we realised in talking and thinking about it that actually the greatest advocate for those still in prison would be the one guy who'd got out. He'd have the story to tell. He'd be able to to articulate it all and, and everybody would want to talk to him about those conditions, about what was going on in prison. So, you know, the promise always was... Um, that we that whoever gets out first, keeps fighting for the others, and that that was that that's what I tried to do.
1: Did you know it would be you? Thinking
0: no, of yourself as the westerner in the equation. I thought that there might have been a chance, a greater chance of it, but I didn't think it. It I didn't I didn't expect it to be me. In fact, I thought all of us would be out together. I didn't think really think one of us would go ahead of the others.
2: And so, what happened to them?
0: They uh, stayed in prison for another couple of weeks. Um, then the retrial began. And in the first, because what happened was that we, we, were, we were convicted, we appealed our conviction, and, and the appeals court overturned the conviction. Before an, an order to retrial, before the retrial could begin, I was plucked out of the system in that kind of gap, I think, and by the, the, pre- the president felt it was legally and, and politically possible to take me out. And he kicked me out of the country. But then when the retrial began two weeks later, they went back into court and I was named as a defendant by the by the prosecutor. What the hell's going on here? This is crazy. Um, those guys were released on bail, and I was a defendant in absentia throughout the whole course of the trial. And then at the end of it, six months later, they were reconvicted. I, I was reconvicted as well, and, and a new sentence was ordered. They went back to prison. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, as far as I'm aware, there, there's a, some kind of arrest warrant out for me. Um, and uh, then a few weeks after that, they were finally pardoned and released, but the pardon didn't extend to me. So, technically, guys, in your prison cell, you've still not only got a convicted terrorist, but a fugitive from justice.
1: Well, look, this is a real dilemma for us, Peter, because oh, Charles is a working journalist. He's very well known. I mean, obviously, we'd like to lock him up, mm. but we, can we risk another media campaign?
2: Well, I don't want any more letters from him. That's the main thing I know about. <laughs>
1: Peter, if you solemnly promise not to play Triple J, Ever again in public, I think we can let you go. In public, no triple J. Freedom of speech, guys. Haven't you joined for the club <laughs> of the book
2: establishment
0: that doesn't exist anymore? Yeah, yeah fair
1: fair cub, alright. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The book is the first casualty. It's out now. Extreme vetting is recorded in the studios at Podcast One written, presented, and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.
2: And remember, no one is safe.